0: You're listening to the Bible Brush Up podcast. We are currently going through a series over the prophets, and we are looking at the prophet Isaiah. And Before we jump into Isaiah chapter 7 today, I'd like to move to the New Testament, a place where they actually quote Isaiah chapter 7, and we're going to look at Matthew chapter 1. Most of you are familiar with this passage because of our Christmas nativity stories that are told and the readings that accompany the Christmas season in church. And this is Matthew 1, right around verse 21, an angel shows up and reveals to Joseph that Mary will bear a son and call his name, they shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. Which is a quote directly from Isaiah chapter 7, verse 14. We're going to go and talk about that here in just a minute. But before we do, we need to talk about what it means to fulfill something. What does it mean that this happened to fulfill? Is there a prediction made in Isaiah chapter 7 that is coming to bear finally? Well, maybe that would be the case, but uh, maybe not. Um, There are many places that the New Testament speaks of a fulfillment where there is no prediction made. Hosea chapter 11 is a great example of that. In Hosea chapter 11, uh, it recalls that God saved the Israelites out of Egyptian bondage back in the book of Exodus under the leadership of Moses. And so it makes this reference to that event saying, out of Egypt, I called my son. This is all looking past tense, things that have already happened in the past. There's no reference to the future at all. Yet when Jesus goes down to Egypt to escape the wrath of Herod, when Herod dies and Jesus can come back to Israel, it says this happened to fulfill what the prophet Hosea said, out of Egypt I call my son. But but there was no prediction. So how in the world could this fulfill that there are many different ways in which fulfillment can take place, and so another way is through accomplishments. There are some things that are awaiting for someone to actually uh, carry out the task. Uh, for instance, the law. The law was given, and no one has lived up to the standards of the law until Jesus shows up. He was a mount perfectly, and so Jesus says, "I didn't come to destroy the law, but to fulfill it." And he fulfills it by living it perfectly. Uh, But I don't think that's the fulfillment that we're looking at in the book of Isaiah either because there's not a standard to live up to that's mentioned in Isaiah chapter seven. Uh, But rather what we see here is probably the third type of fulfillment, which is recapitulation. Recapitulation, big fancy word that just means to relive an event in a greater and more significant way. And so we see this in that Hosea 11 passage that we just described, because Jesus comes, and he is in Egypt, and he is trying to escape an oppressive leader, just like the Israelites were, so there's a lot of similarity between the two stories, but Jesus, when he comes out of of Egypt and goes to Israel, he does so perfectly. He doesn't sin along the way. He doesn't doubt God along the way. He doesn't, um, you know, groan and moan over the food that he's got along the way. Everything he does is perfect. So this is one instance where Jesus is depicted as the new and better Israel. There are places you can find Jesus being depicted as the new and better Moses. There are places you can find Jesus depicted as the new and better David, the new and better Solomon, so on and so forth. And so throughout the New Testament Jesus recapitulates all of the Old Testament stories and events. Sometimes the Old Testament predicts things that come true in Jesus, but sometimes he just relives them out. And I think that's probably the kind of fulfillment we're looking at here. We'll explore that a little bit more in detail now. Looking back at Isaiah chapter 7, we can find some mirror images between the circumstances of Isaiah and the circumstances in which Matthew writes his account. Um, There are political threats in both if you look at uh, the time of Isaiah, there is a an alliance being formed between uh, Syria and Ephraim. So that would be the, the region of Damascus and Aram and the people of the northern kingdom, Israel. They are forming alliances to fight off the major threat that's coming, and that's Assyria. Assyria will actually be the country that destroys and captures the people of the northern kingdom. Uh, whereas Babylon will end up rising to power and taking the southern kingdom, Judah. But uh, this Assyrian threat is a real deal, and this alliance is being formed to withstand it. However, the southern kingdom is not entering into this alliance, and so the league of those forming this alliance are turning Uh, their threats against Judah, the southern kingdom. And it's in that political climate that Isaiah is writing to King Ahaz, uh, which shows another mirror image of Matthew. In Matthew, we have not only the uh, political climate of the Roman occupation and the turmoil that's uh, gone around in Israel politically over that, that they don't really have control of themselves. There's always a threat that the outside forces will come and change things. and prevent them from worshiping God, and they're always looking for a Messiah that will throw off the yoke of the Romans. And so there's this political turmoil that's uh, always there and present in Matthew's context. But there's also an evil king, just like there is in Isaiah. Matthew's evil king is King Herod the Great. And the Romans who had occupied Israel, they appointed this king. It's not a king that came about organically. He's not from the line of David like uh, the kings were supposed to be. But rather, this is a puppet of Rome. And he comes, and he's a very evil person paranoid king who kills his own wife, kills his own mother-in-law, kills his own brother-in-law. Then he ends up killing his own two sons because he's afraid they're going to take the throne. And then some wise men show up one day and say that the new king of the Jews is around. And so he kills everybody two years old and younger because he is paranoid that someone's going to take his throne away from him. There was a saying that uh, it was better to be Herod's pig than his son. And the word for pig in the Greek is hua, and the word for son is huia. So it's better to be Herod's hua than his huia. And that would be true because as a Jew, he didn't eat pork, and therefore he wouldn't kill his pig. So you're safer as Herod's pig than as his son. And so this crazy evil king is a threat to the people of Israel, to their national security, to their true and genuine worship. And in that climate, God responds by sending Jesus. However, in Isaiah's climate, there's the political threat of this um, Ephraimite League. There is a threat of Assyria. And during all of that, God sends a response to this evil king Ahaz through Isaiah, who shows up with his son. His son is named Shear Yashub, and the name itself is a prophecy, because as Isaiah has already alluded to in earlier chapters, there is going to be major devastation to the southern kingdom, and many people will die, many people will be taken away, many people uh, will just be crushed under the fury of God's wrath and judgment, but there will be some who are spared. There will be a remnant. And so Shi'ar Yashib is a name that literally means a remnant shall return. It'd be like if I named... my son frisbee thrower because he's good at throwing frisbees, or I I named my daughter dancer because she's good at dancing, or if I was making a prediction about something that was going to take place later on, I would name my son, uh, the world will end on June 3rd, or something like that. Um, But these Jewish names actually are expressions that have a meaning tied to them. They're not just random, uh, aesthetic-sounding names that are to identify the person, but it came with meaning and especially from a prophet who was trying to convey something. So Isaiah shows up with his son, a remnant shall return and speaks to Ahaz. Now I would like to talk about the ambiguity of prophetic uh, utterances. And it's sort of a theme that runs through the prophets, especially here in Isaiah, uh, ambiguity in that you don't always know the exact um, meaning of an expression. You don't know all the nuances of it. You don't know whether it's good or bad. And sometimes that's dependent upon who's hearing the word. And so if you hear a remnant shall return, is that a, a an expression of mercy or an expression of judgment? And the fact is, it's probably both at the same time. Uh, to illustrate this, it'd be like if I showed up uh, to church one Sunday and uh, everybody was worried and scared because there was nuclear threats and I uh, had some glowing aura about me as if I had a divine message from on high, and I spoke to you and said these words, some of you will live, and then I vanished in thin air so that you knew that this was a divine message. Okay, that will never happen, by the way, but if that were to happen, would that message be comforting, or would that message be a message of judgment? Well, it kind of depends, right? If you thought that everybody was going to die and you heard some of you will survive, I mean, maybe if I said it in that creepy voice, it doesn't matter how uh, positive the message is, it would just sound really bad. But the message itself could be a comforting message if you thought everybody was going to die. If you didn't think anybody was going to die and you heard that some of you will survive, then now you are suddenly faced with the truth that there's going to be a lot of death that you weren't expecting. And so it could be a negative message. Well, I think a lot of these um, prophecies from Isaiah have this uh, dual-edged sword about them that can either be a positive or a negative. It can be a blessing or a curse. It can be God's mercy or God's judgment on display. And sometimes both at the exact same time, depending on who the hearer is and what their response to God is. And so shiar Yashub, a remnant shall return, is probably a uh, comfort to some and a discomfort to others. And so he goes to the king, and in chapter 7, verse 11, Isaiah a- uh, tells Ahaz to ask for a sign, but Ahaz refuses under the guise of righteousness. He's an evil king. He doesn't really care about what God has to say. Second um, Kings tells us that he's already formulating alliances with Assyria. The very people that are going to destroy the northern kingdom, the very people that this uh, alliance uh, that is a threat to the southern kingdom, this Syrian Ephraimite alliance, the very people they're trying to withstand and hold off, well, now the king of the southern kingdom, Judah, has formed this alliance with Assyria, the big threat, instead of trusting God. And so he's not really righteous here, but he is pretending to be righteous. And so he quotes from the book of Deuteronomy saying, I won't put God to the test. Same thing Jesus says when Satan tempts him in the wilderness. Jesus says you shouldn't put God to the test. Well, Ahaz uses it here, but he's not righteous in quoting this because he doesn't care about putting God to the test. He just doesn't want to be faced with his unwillingness to trust in God over foreign alliances. And so Isaiah says, Well, you're going to get a sign, anyways. And the sign is that the virgin will give birth to a son, and he will be called Emmanuel. And we know from um, the translation in Matthew, they clear that up. Emmanuel means God with us. So the virgin's going to give birth to a son. And just like Shiar Yahshub had a name that meant something significant. Well, now Emmanuel comes with. Uh, some significance that God is with us. And once once again, we have to ask, is this good news or bad news? Uh, God being with the people is good if you're righteous and holy. But if you are unrighteous like Ahaz and you have neglected God's commands and you have put your trust in foreign alliances, then God being with you is actually a negative thing because it comes with judgment and it comes with God's wrath. Um, That's true for us on the day of judgment, the day of the Lord. It's often asked, is the day of the Lord a good day or a bad day? Well, it depends on who you are, and it depends on what you've done with your life and how um, how you've responded to God in saving faith. If you've rejected him, then it's a very, very bad day. If you've accepted him, then it's a very, very good day. And that's the same type of dual meaning we have with this Emmanuel figure. Uh, And so that ambiguity is on display once again. Uh, There's some other uh, references here that could be interpreted as good or bad. Before the child eats curds and honey, well, we think of the land flowing with milk and honey as a good thing, but then just a few verses later, when it's describing curds and honey, it's describing it within the poverty that the nation is about to uh, embrace. That they're not going to have the fruit that they were previously growing because of the devastation in the land. And so, curds and honey is a symbol of their poverty. And so, the child eating curds and honey is a reminder that poverty is about to crush this particular region. Uh, However, they are going to withstand the Syrian Ephraimite alliance. That's the big threat, the immediate threat. They are going to withstand them, but. In the end, they are going to fall, and that's a reminder. So we've got both deliverance and God's wrath both coming together at the same time here in the book of Isaiah. Uh, so we move on to chapter 8, and in chapter 8, we see that Isaiah is supposed to write on a tablet the name Maher um, Shalal Hashbaz. Whether I said that correctly, I'm not sure, but Maher Shalal. Hashbaz is what is supposed to be given to his next child as a name. And that name means spoil speeds, pray hastens. Spoil speeds, pray hastens. So once again, we have a name that means something. And perhaps this could be uh, ambiguous as well and it could have dual meaning as well but the prophetess here which is probably Isaiah's wife and the reason she's a prophetess isn't because she's speaking prophetically but because she is bearing children who are a walking living prophet based on the name that they're given but they are to communicate this message that spoil speeds and pray hastens so we have a remnant shall return we have God with us and now we have spoil speeds pray hastens and in verse 18 of chapter 8 Isaiah says this, I and the children the Lord has given me are signs and portents in Israel from the Lord. And so the children that Isaiah has been given by God are walking, living signs of what God is going to do and about God's mercy and about God's judgment. Um, They describe all that is going to come about, and they were reminders. As people see them and see you know, or at least hear their name called, they know that God is about to do something big. And so all of that, uh, we could say a lot more, but i want to bring it back around to uh, this idea of Emmanuel, because some view this prophecy as a prediction of what will happen in the New Testament with Jesus. But Isaiah says right here that these children were given to him. They walk around with him then and there. Furthermore, when you read through Uh, this in the Hebrew language, the language that it was originally written in, we find out that the word virgin doesn't mean virgin at all. It just means the young lady. Uh, And if this is Isaiah's wife, she already had a child, so she wasn't a virgin. She was just a young lady. And there's no explicit description of how this child would come about. It doesn't describe a virgin birth, for say, it just says that the young lady will give birth. And so this child probably comes about through natural means. Um, Yet in the New Testament, we are dealing with a true virgin birth. And we have a very explicit description of how they did not know each other. They did not come together uh, until after Jesus was born, Mary and Joseph. So did Matthew just make up the virgin part of it, or did he add to what the scripture already said? I don't think that's the case at all. In fact, when we look at the Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Old Testament, uh, instead of using the word Alma, uh, which is the Hebrew word for the young lady, they use the word Parthenos, which is a Greek word, which can mean a young lady. So it doesn't change the meaning. It still means young lady, but it also can mean virgin. And Jesus Uh, or Matthew rather, quotes from the Septuagint, not from the Hebrew text, and follows it more closely uh, as he's writing in Greek, and so they use the word that actually can mean virgin. So Matthew doesn't take liberties and create uh, new meaning out of thin air, but rather this is that idea of recapitulation. Jesus is born as a sign of major significance but even greater significance than the children born in Isaiah's day because it comes not just from a young lady but from a virgin which has all the uh, literary ties back to the original text of Isaiah and all of those circumstantial factors that mirror the time period of Isaiah are still at play which shows us how the context of Isaiah actually is very important for Uh, truly uh, embracing what the significance of the virgin birth in Matthew's account really is. So the big question that pops up when we're doing this kind of study is, did Isaiah know or think that his prophecy was future Like, future, future, New Testament future? Or was he just talking about the woman in the room? In fact, when it says, the virgin, it says, behold, the virgin, uh, there's a definite article there. It seems like he's talking about a person right there. In fact, it says, behold, look. It says, look, that woman right there, she's going to have a child, and the name is going to be Emmanuel. And it's a sign to Ahaz. It's a sign to the king then and there that this Syrian threat and this Ephraimite threat are not going to come to pass. So what good would a prophecy be for a sign to the people in Isaiah's day? What good would that sign be if it had nothing to do with his day and it didn't come to pass until hundreds of years after they were all dead and in the ground and after uh, everything had already been carried out? That's not much of a sign at all. Uh, And so it seems very clear that there was a true child born in Isaiah's day, born to a young lady, not a virgin, not a miraculous birth, but to a young lady. And it was a sign to Ahaz and to the people of Judah that the Syrian and Ephraimite threat were not going to be successful against them. However, as many prophecies are, they can be recapitulated into more meaningful and significant events that match up with many of the descriptions that were given in the original context, that that's what is happening. Did Isaiah know that was going to be the case? We can't be for certain about that, but it, also, it seems that when we get to chapter 9, there are some descriptions of a child being born that could not fit any of the naturally born children of Isaiah's day. It says in verse six, for to us a child is born, to us a son is given and the government shall be upon his shoulder and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness. From this time forth and forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. And so this is a reminder to us that even in the context of these children being born in Isaiah's day as signs to the people of Judah, there is this expectation that there will be a child that comes and brings ultimate deliverance from every national threat, from every oppression, and who acts as the father, acts on behalf of God himself. Um, And so he's called Mighty God there in the text. And you wouldn't say that about any of the children born from Isaiah. You wouldn't call them Mighty God. Um, But yet this child gets that name. And, of course, Jesus Christ fulfills that perfectly as he is both um, the son of God and a member of the triune Godhead. So God himself. Uh, he, he is both and the same, and he lives out to perfection all of those things that were uh, suggested by the prophetic names of Isaiah's children. Um, we'll stop there. We've covered a lot of content here, but those are some things to think about and reflect on as you read not only the Old Testament, but look into the New Testament. Uh, we'll pick up next time here on the Bible Brush-Up Podcast.